kabilule wa okulu tenau kishmi il komi hiv Get your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. That's on page 464 if you may be using one of the Bibles you picked up this morning as you're finding your way there. We want to welcome our guests this morning. If you, this is your first time at the Orchard Church, we're thrilled to have you as our first time guest. And we would encourage you to uh, pay attention to that connection card there in your newsletter. And uh, fill that out if you wouldn't mind and drop it in the offering plate whenever we receive the gifts at the end of service. We want to just send you a simple thank you card and a gift from our church for being here with us this morning. Today we're concluding our four-week series called Famous Last Words. And uh, I realized last week we finished with the last words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. And so you might be thinking, well then, how are there any more words after that? I saved one till the end. We're going to go back a little bit and look at the last words, some of the very last words of Christ to his disciples in that upper room when he said, do this in remembrance of me. And what does that mean? What does that practically mean for us today and what did Christ mean when he said that to his disciples some 2,000 years ago. Um, I think this is very appropriate we're talking about this today because tonight we're going to be having communion service here at uh, Prairie View High School here in this auditorium tonight at 6.30 and so I invite all of you, I hope many of you can come back uh, tonight. We only do this two or three times a year. We'll talk about that a little bit in the message, uh, why just two or three times a year, uh, but, but that's tonight. So I wanted to take some time this morning, it's been several years since we've kind of taken a Sunday morning to teach on what the Bible says uh, about communion. And what I want you to understand is that 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ gathered his disciples in that upper room, they were there doing something they had been doing for 14, over 1,400 years. It was called the Passover meal. If you've ever heard of the Passover, say yes. That's what the disciples thought they were showing up for. That once a year meal to remind them of Israel's exodus, you know, out of Egypt and out of the hands of Pharaoh. And they thought they were just going to be remembering that like any other night. But that night, Jesus turned the Passover meal into something brand new and completely different. What we know today as communion. Let's look at the scripture in Paul's account. It's one of the most detailed accounts of what took place in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, and these are the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll see these words in red. Jesus said, Take, eat. This is my what, church? My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Now, many of you recognize those words and you immediately think of communion. But can you imagine what the disciples might have been thinking that night? What are you talking about? I thought this was just the same meal we've been doing for 1,400 years to remember the Exodus, but he's turning it into something new. Verse 25, he said, In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And thank God he reminds us he's coming again. Amen? His death and his burial and his resurrection are not the end of the story. So why are we going to take a Sunday to teach on this? I mean, this is going to be a, a very doctrinal, if you will, uh, message today uh, of what we believe the Bible teaches about this. And I think it's important we do this every once in a while here in our church because we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds in our church. And we love that. A lot of people from a lot of different kinds of churches, different denominations, different teachings, different t- traditions. And there are a lot of different teachings, traditions, and opinions about communion. And I'm going to tell you what I mentioned last week, encouraging you to come today. I'm not going to tell you today what I believe about communion. I'm not going to tell you what the Orchard Church believes about communion or or what we think communion is. I'm going to show you today what the Bible says about communion. Because that's all that matters. Amen? That's all that matters to us in every message here at the Orchard Church. Not what does a denomination say or what does the church say or what does the pastor say, but what does the Bible say? And so we're going to go to the scriptures today and we're going to look at four biblical truths about communion. So if you're taking notes, I've got quite a bit there for you today. I hope you'll take notes and you'll keep this around for for future reference and I've given you a lot of references this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is the accounts of communion in the scripture. The accounts. It was first of all instituted by Christ at the Last Supper. We just read about it. There Uh, the night he was betrayed in the upper room that was when it began that's when it was instituted it was recorded in all of the gospels you can read about it in Matthew chapter 26 Mark chapter 14 uh, Luke chapter 22 John chapter 13 this event was recorded in all of the gospels it was observed by all the New Testament churches you know Jesus instituted it there in the upper room but then you begin to read about the New Testament churches and they all begin to observe uh, what we know today as communion the Lord's Supper Um, It started in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Um, You can read about it in uh, the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm just giving you some of these references so you can go uh, study these yourself. We believe that the Bible teaches that communion is one of two church ordinances that the Lord has given us to observe. Now ordinance may be kind of a big word. Maybe you've heard of a city ordinance being passed. Have you ever heard of a city ordinance? Say yes. Well, what is a city ordinance? It's basically a decree or a command. This is something you're, you're going to do. We've made this a decree, a command. And so we believe there are two church ordinances commanded to us by the Lord. Now, you might ask, well, what makes something a church ordinance? Because there's a lot of things that Christ has told us to do and mentioned to do and different things. So what makes something an ordinance and how come there's two? And, and this is what I found. An ordinance is something that's found in all four of the Gospels, practiced in the Church of Acts, and instructed is given in one or more of the epistles of the writings of Paul and, and others. Um, you know, some churches believe in what's called foot washing. Have you ever heard of that maybe, foot washing? And you know, they, they, they teach that as a church ordinance. Now listen, if a church chooses to wash people's feet and they want to do that, that's fine. It was an example Christ set about servanthood. I washed my feet this morning. Hope you washed yours too. But we don't, and, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. We just don't believe it's a church ordinance or a command to do so. Now we might choose to do it, but it's not something we're regularly told to do because it's only recorded in one 
of the Gospels. You don't read anything about it in the church in Acts. And no instruction is given in the epistles. That's different than the two ordinances we believe that the scriptures do clearly give to us. Let me give you the two ordinances. The first one is what our church is all about. And what we were founded on because it's an ordinance, it's a command. And that is that we should make what church? Disciples. We are a disciple-making church because it's one of the church ordinances. It was one of the commands of Jesus. What was the last words of the church? He said in Matthew 20, 18, Go therefore and make, what church? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son, uh, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes churches refer to this as the great commandment or the great commission. And you know, it's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It's not something Jesus said, hey, if you feel like doing it, you know, every once in a while. No, it's what he told us to do to actively be making disciples, bringing people to Christ, helping them grow in their faith, and then equipping them to bring other people to Christ. And we are very intentional about that process here at the Orchard Church. I'm happy to tell you we have over 175 people currently, adults, involved in one-on-one discipleship here at the Orchard Church. People who are being discipled, discipling others, being equipped to continue and to reproduce reproducers. So one of the church ordinances we're told by the Lord to do is make disciples. Guess what the second one is? It's communion. The second one is communion. We just read it about here, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Notice what Jesus said. He said, do this. Does that sound like a suggestion or a command? That sounds like a command. He didn't say, hey, if you feel like it or you might think about it or hey, here's something optional it might be neat for your church to do every once in a while. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, he said, this do. Jesus was very emphatic that, that communion is something we are supposed to do as a church. He told us to do it. Now, here's the question everybody wants to know. How often are we to do it? Because there are churches that do it, some of them once a year. Some of them three or four times a year, kind of like us. There are other churches that some of you have come from. They do it every week and every service and, and those things. So we get that question asked all the time. How often are we to do this? As I study the scriptures and I look at all the places where Jesus talked about this, here's what I think is very important. Jesus did not put the emphasis on how often we're to do it. He put the emphasis on when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. I think that it's very important that we are more intentional about when we do it, we do it for the right reason and right purpose and right meaning than how often we do it. Jesus said do this, but he didn't give us specifics. One could even make an argument that he was referring to once a year because remember, what were they partaking in? The Passover meal. How often do the Jews participate in the Passover meal? Once a year. When he said in verse 24, do this, what were they doing? They were participating in the Passover meal. When he said in verse 26, as often as you do this, what was the this? It was the Passover meal. So one could make an argument that he was even referring to once a year. So here's, here's my heart on this and what I believe the scripture teaches. I want to make sure as a church that we don't get so caught up in how often we do it, but we get caught up and when we do it, we do it for the right reason. We do it for the right purpose. We do it and make sure that it has meaning. We don't want to do anything as a church that becomes an empty ritual or duty or religious thing. 
We want it to have meaning. We want it to have purpose. That's one of the reasons why we have, as a church have chosen to do it two, three times a year or as God lays it on our heart. And when we do it, it's very unique. It's very special. You know, we, we do a special service tonight. It will all be about communion tonight. There won't be any announcements. There won't be any offering. There won't be anything except us praising God and taking communion and focusing on what he did for us. And we've had many people in our church that have been a part of our communion service and say, wow, that was one of the most meaningful meaningful communion services I've ever been a part of. And I believe one of the reasons is because we don't do it so often that it becomes an empty ritual and just duty that we go through. We don't want to do anything in our lives just to be going through the motions. Amen? And so I think it's important that, that we, when we do it, we do it for the right reason. Let's talk about, we've looked at the accounts of communion. Let's talk about the analogies of communion. What does it represent? There are two specific symbols used in communion. The bread... And I have some of it here we're going to talk about in just a moment. And the cup, which contains the, the wine or the grape juice. Uh, these two symbols. Now, what do these two symbols represent? Well, let me first address uh, what they do not represent according to the scriptures. Because I think there are two unbiblical teachings kind of going around that teach some things about these elements, the bread and the, and the juice or wine, that I do not find anywhere in scripture. For some of you, you'll go, oh yeah, I've heard about this. For some of you, you'll be like, I've never heard about that. But if you ever do, I want you to know about them. And this is what we believe they do not represent. One is called transubstantiation. It's a big word that means this. that Teaching that the elements literally change into the actual body and blood of Christ. There's some churches that believe that, that. That when you take the bread, that it literally, supernaturally, mysteriously somehow becomes the body, the literal body of Christ, and that the, the, the juice of the wine literally becomes the literal blood of Christ. I find that nowhere in Scripture that it teaches that it literally becomes that. Another kind of variation is a teaching called consubstantiation. And it means that the elements, they don't completely become the body and blood of Christ, but they kind of contain the body and blood of Christ. I like the way a theologian Henry Cook said it. He said it this way, in themselves the bread and the cup are merely symbolic. They're analogies. And the material substance of the bread and the wine remain what they are and undergo no mysterious transformation. Just as the water in the baptismal service is not holy, the bread and the wine at the communion service remain bread and wine even though they're used in the most sacred rite of the church. And that's what, what we believe. Let's remember, be reminded once again, when the disciples came to that Passover meal, they knew they were just having bread and they were having wine, and it was a symbol. It was an analogy, and it was a remembrance. So what do these elements represent for us? What are the analogies? First, let's talk about the bread. And what did Jesus say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24? Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. The bread represents the body of Christ. Now the bread that we use is the same that was used in the Jewish Passover. And, and, and the bread we use, it's called matzah bread. I'll explain a little bit more about it in just a moment. But this is the exact same bread that, that Orthodox Jews use today in their Passover Seder. And here's what's important about it. It's unleavened bread. It hasn't risen. Um, because in Exodus chapter 12 verse 15 to 20, God told them to use unleavened bread. That hasn't risen. Well, why did God tell them to use unleavened bread? Because there's a picture and there's a symbol to unleavened bread. In the scriptures, leaven was a picture or type of sin. 
And if this is picturing the body of Christ who knew no sin, then we don't want to have leaven in the bread. The unleavened bread is a perfect symbol of Christ's body, which we know was without sin. Let me remind you of some scriptures. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 said this. John said, and you know that he was manifest to take away our sin. And in him there was how much sin, church? No sin. There was no sin in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the unleavened bread, leaven being the type or picture of sin, it's, we use unleavened bread because it's a perfect symbol and picture of Christ who was without sin. Now there's some interesting things, and I know that for you guys, when you come in tonight and we distribute the elements, you're going to get bread that's already been broken up. But I, I, I've got a whole piece here this morning, and I know not all of you can see it, but you'll notice it if you pay attention to it tonight, even in your pieces of bread. There's some interesting and neat symbols in the matzah bread. One of the things you'll notice is there's stripes on the matzah bread. It's striped, and we know that, that Jesus, um, you know, by his stripes, we are healed. He was, he was scourged, and, and he was beaten with a cat of nine tails, and these stripes represent the beating he took for us. You'll notice that there's little burn marks, like bruising on the bread, and we know the scripture says that he was bruised for our, transac- for our, transac- our transgressions. I'll get the word out in a minute. You talk enough up here, you get tongue-tied. But this bruising reminds us of the bruises that Christ took for us. You'll also notice if you look really closely in this bread, and I don't know if you guys maybe here on the front can see, but there's little holes in this bread. There's piercings. There's piercings through all of this bread reminds us that Jesus was pierced for us. His hands were pierced. His feet was pierced. He was, his side was pierced for us. And then, of course, we know the ultimate example, Jesus said, after they broke it. The bread is broken just like the body of Christ was broken for us, for our sins. And so the bread represents the body of Christ, the sinless, perfect body of Christ that was broken, beaten, pierced, bruised for our sin. And then the second element and analogy is the cup Verse 25, what did Jesus say? This cup is the new covenant of my, what does it represent? My blood. And of course, it's, it's not so much the cup, but it's what's in the cup. And, and the cup will have either freshly prepared wine or grape juice. We use grape juice um, because we have children and, and, and participating in our communion. Um, Matthew chapter 26 refers to it as the fruit uh, of the vine. Here's what's important about the wine of the juice. It's the color. It's the color of crimson, the color of blood. And it's poured out like Christ's blood was poured out for us. Hebrews 9.22 says that according to the law, Almost all things are cleansed or purified with blood. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or no payment. No payment for what? No payment for our sins. It was the blood of Christ that was poured out, given to forgive and take away our sins. Ephesians 1 7 says it this way In him we have redemption through his what, church? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So the bread represents. His body that was broken. The blood represents the cup, represents his blood that was given and shed for our our sins. Several years ago in Ontario, Canada, there was a family uh, named George and Vera Baczynski. And their lives were changed forever one morning on February 16, 1989. It was started out to be a very normal Thursday morning. The phone rang at 9.15 a.m. There had been an accident. 
and it involved their son, their teenage son, Ben. As they approached the intersection near the high school, they could see the flashing lights of police cars and ambulance and other emergency units. Vera noticed a photographer and followed the direction of the camera lens to the largest pool of blood in the street that she had ever seen. All she could say was, George, Ben is gone. Her first reaction was to jump out of the car and somehow collect the blood and put it back into her son. She was reported as saying, that blood for me at that moment became the most precious thing in the world because it was life. It was life-giving blood and it belonged in my son, my only son, the one I loved so much. Then Vera understood at that moment for the first time in her life one of God's greatest and most beautiful truths. Why blood? Because it was the strongest language God could have used. It was the most precious thing he could give, the highest price he could pay. I like the words of Charles Wesley penned many years ago. It's in the song. He says, amazing love, how can it be that though my God should die for me? These analogies of the body and representing the blood of Christ, when we take them tonight, they remind us of the unbelievable, unconditional, sacrificial love of God that gave his body and blood for us. We've looked at the accounts of communion, the analogies of communion. Let's talk a little bit about the aim of communion. What's the meaning and purpose of why we take communion? Why, why do we do this? What does it mean? What is the purpose? I told you I want to make sure that we, when we do this, we do it for the right meaning. We do it for the right purpose. We do not want anybody to do this and not understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and the significance of it. So I want to give you several of the meanings and purposes of communion that we find in Scripture. First of all, communion is a reflection. It's a reflection. We are reflecting on the fact that Jesus gave his body and his blood for our salvation, for our eternal life, so that we could be saved. That's what Jesus said in verse 24. He said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Remember me. Reflect. Recognize. Reflect upon me and what I did for you. Be reminded of Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated, he showed his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, what did he do for us? Christ died for us. Tonight as we take communion, I want you to think about, I want you to reflect on what Jesus did for you. He would have done it for you if you were the only one. He did it and we reflect on what he did. He did it for us and we remember what he did. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, it means so much to us who know him as Lord and Savior today. It reminds us of John 3.16, the verse we all love so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. First of all, it is a reflection. Letter B, it is not only a reflection but it's a recognition. Communion is a recognition. We are recognizing that the body and blood of Christ was and is, listen church, the only acceptable sacrifice for sins and to provide our salvation. If you believe that church this morning, say yes. We are recognizing there is nothing else that could save us except for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10, I love What Hebrews says, the writer of Hebrews, it says it this way, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for how many? For all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, which man? Jesus. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
You know why Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after he gave his body and blood for our sins and was risen again? He sat down because the job was done. It was complete. Our salvation was provided. Nothing can be taken or added to that. The job was complete. And when we take communion, we recognize that it was the body and blood of Christ that was and is and will always be the only thing that can forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. And we recognize that Jesus is our Savior. Ted Turner, some of you have heard of him. He's a billionaire, owner of CNN. He was once being interviewed, I believe, by Larry King, and this is what he said. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. Almost every religion talks about a Savior who is coming. When I look in the mirror, I'm looking at my Savior. Nobody else is going to save me or anyone else but themselves. Well, church, I've got another word for Ted Turner. (laughs) When we take communion, we recognize our need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only one that can provide that for us. He's the only one that can save us. And without him, we have no hope. But with him, we have hope. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He didn't say I'm a way or I'm one of the ways. Sometimes I have people ask me and people ask you, you know, you Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. What about other religions that believe something different? Listen, I believe what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, except through Christ. We believe that. Amen, church? That's why we've got to be so passionate about sharing that message with our community, with our world, because we believe he's the only way. And when we take communion, we recognize and we reflect that Jesus Christ was and is and will always be the only Savior and hope of the world. If you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope you'll recognize that today, even in what we're teaching. If you're here today and you say, you know, I know I've sinned, I know I've messed up, who hasn't? But today, the good news is, you can recognize you need a Savior, and you can find that Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. He can take away your sins. He can give you eternal life. He gave his body and blood on the cross 2,000 years ago to provide that for you if you'll accept it by faith. You see, our salvation cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything, didn't it? Everything. And when we take communion, it's a reflection. Looking back at that, it's a recognition. It's also something else. It's a celebration. It's a celebration. We do not come to communion tonight to mourn a corpse. We come to celebrate a risen Savior. Amen? And that's what we're looking forward to next Sunday. Man, it is going to be just awesome around here. Three services, Saturday night, two Sunday morning. This place is going to be packed out. We're expecting 1,400, 1,500 people next weekend for Easter. We're going to have live baptisms. It's going to be amazing. And we're going to celebrate all weekend our risen Lord and Savior. I love when we sing that one song, Our God's Not Dead, He's Alive. And when we take communion, we, we not only remember His death, but we remember His resurrection and that He's alive. One of the things we celebrate also is Jesus' love for us. It was his love that put him on the cross that caused him to go there. Love was at the heart of Christ's death. I love what it talks about in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood 
and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You know what? Jesus didn't just say those words. He lived those words. He, lo- he showed us a love. Love is an action. And he showed that love in action through his sacrifice on the cross. I, I love the-, the words to that song that we sometimes sing around here by Dave Crowder. Oh, how he loves us. Let me just, sometimes, you know, we sing songs and we get so caught up in the music and the, and the singing that we don't think about the words. Let me just read these words to you that we sing all the time. He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are. And how great your affections are for me. And oh how he loves us. Oh how he loves us. How he loves us all. Do you believe that this morning, church? We celebrate that he, how much he loves us and that he is alive. We take communion to celebrate the sacrificial love of our risen Savior. I, I've said it, I know, many times. If you've ever wondered how much does Jesus love me, he stretched out his arms on a cross and he said, I love you this much. And he died for you. Communion is a reflection It's a recognition, it's a celebration, but it's also something else. It's an anticipation. It's an anticipation, an anticipation of what? What Paul just reminded us of here in verse 26. Look at it with me, 1 Corinthians 11, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you take communion, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he what? Till he comes. We're waiting for him to come again. We believe the next prophetic event that's going to happen on, on God's time calendar is that he's going to return. That, that the rapture of the church is going to take place. And communion reminds us that Jesus is coming again. I know we often say this, but wouldn't it be neat if the next time we take communion, it's not here, but it's with the Lord there. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we're actually with the risen Lord and Savior to, together. We rem, we're reminded of that tonight. That it's also... A, a remembrance that he's coming. It's an anticipation that he's coming again. But let me give you one more. Let me tell you what it's not, what communion is not. not. We've looked at several things that, that it is, but let me tell you what it's not. It's not a means of salvation. There are some that believe and teach that, but I find that nowhere in Scripture that when you take communion, that the act of taking communion forgives you of sins or gives you eternal life or any of those kind of things. The, the supper is, is an analogy. It's a symbol of salvation that took place on the cross. We're remembering the body and blood that was given 2,000 years ago. It is, but it's a symbol. It's a reminder. That's why Jesus said, do this not to be saved. What he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember me. It doesn't save us, but it reminds us of that which did save us was when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's just like baptism. Does baptism save us? No, not according to the scripture. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. Whenever we have these people that are going to be baptized um, next Sunday, all these people, we had 94 last year. I don't know how many we're going to have this year, but I can't wait to find out. Every one of them, before we allow them to be baptized, we ask them this question. Have you personally received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if they haven't, all they're going to do is get wet. 
The baptism doesn't save. It's a symbol of those to proclaim publicly. We'll talk about this next Sunday, but we're going to have a lot of people that are going to go public with their faith next Sunday morning on this stage. Letting us know they have accepted Christ. The baptism doesn't save them. Communion doesn't save us. They are all pictures and symbols of that which does, which is when Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's just like our wedding ring. You know, when you wear a wedding ring, you wear it as a symbol of your marriage, of your relationship. But if you take the wedding ring off, it doesn't mean you're not married. It doesn't work that way. Not that easy, okay? Come on now. Your wedding ring is just a symbol of your relationship. And a picture, same with baptism, same with communion. And we need to remember this, that when we come tonight and we partake in communion, that is something we participate in. That is something we do. We, would, we could call that a work. That is something we do. And we know we are not saved by any duties or rituals or religious practices or works we do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it so clearly. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Baptism? Through communion? No. What does it say? You're saved through... Let's, let's all say that. We're saved through what, church? Faith. Don't ever, ever forget that. We are saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It blows my mind that 98% of religions around the world tell you if you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to have your sins forgiven, then you need to do this, this, and this, and don't do this, this, and this. And they give you this list of works when the Bible clearly says you're not saved of works, you're saved by faith. Now let me say this, once you're saved by faith, then you should work for the Lord. And you should live out your faith. Listen, we didn't work to get it, but we should work afterwards in recognition of everything that the Lord has done for us. We've looked at the accounts of communion, the analogies, the aims of communion. Now let's finally talk about the admissions of communion. In other words, who should partake of communion? There's a lot of different beliefs about this. Different churches uh, teach different things. Who should partake in communion? I mean, is everyone able to partake in communion? Is it just for a select few? Is it just for people in our church? Who is it for? Well, let me give you three biblical prerequisites for admission to communion according to the Scripture. This is what the Bible pattern shows us who the people are that should be able to participate in communion. First of all, letter A, a person should be a believer. They should be someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the clearest examples of this process is in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Watch this process. And we know, let me give you the context. Peter was preaching the gospel. He was sharing how people come, could come to faith in Christ. He was sharing the word of God. And then it says, then those who gladly received his word. What did they receive? They received Christ. They received the gospel. They, received, they, they were saved. They received his word and then they were what? Baptized. Now, we're not teaching a lesson on baptism, but there's an example right there. You've you got to receive the word. You've got to receive Christ first. Then you get baptized. Then that day, there, uh, it says that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. They become part of the family of God, the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching, in fellowship, in breaking of bread. Many believe that's talking there about communion. It's another way of saying communion, the breaking of bread and in prayers. So do you see the process? What was the first prerequisite? That they received the word. The, the written word, the physical word, Jesus Christ. They were saved, then they were baptized, then they partook in communion. Again, it would be like somebody trying to take communion that is a symbol of what Christ did for them 
If they've never accepted him by faith and they partake in communion, it's kind of like going to the store and buying a wedding ring and putting it on and telling everybody you're married when you didn't enter that relationship. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything. So communion is for people who've accepted Christ because it means something to them. They're being reminded of what Christ did for them and that they accepted him by faith. And so you say, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I should come to communion tonight or not because I, I'm not sure if I've accepted Christ or not. I've got a great idea. Why don't you accept Christ today into your life by faith and take your first communion with us tonight? Amen? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be okay? Do that today and have your first communion tonight. Maybe you've taken communion many times in a church and you just went through the motions and you didn't even recognize and realize what it meant because you'd never accepted Christ. Maybe you'll make that decision to receive Christ today and tonight. It'll have so much meaning to you. So a person first should be a believer. Second, not only should a person be a believer, but what does it say in Acts chapter 2 verse 41? They received his word, they were saved, and then they were what? They were baptized. We believe a person should be a believer and they should be baptized and then take communion. You say, well, why is that important? Because baptism is the very first step of obedience that Christ asks us to do after we're saved. We'll talk about this next week, You'll see, and this is why we're doing it. You see through scriptures this pattern. People accepted Christ, got baptized. It was like boom, boom. I mean, they got saved, they got baptized. They got saved, they got baptized. Now, it's a little more of a challenge for us as a church because we meet here at Prairie View High School. Unfortunately, they didn't build us a baptistry in when they, they just weren't thinking of us when they built the high school. They don't have a swimming pool here. So we've got to be more creative. So when we have baptism here at the Orchard Church, we go rent out like the Hampton Hotel and we go, they have an indoor pool, except on Easter where we're going to bring it in next Sunday. Now, let me say this. If you've accepted Christ recently at our church or, or today, you go, well, wait a minute. If I accept Christ today, unless you're going to give me a baptism this afternoon, should I not take communion tonight? Here's, here's what I believe about this. I believe it's about your heart and about obedience. And if you are fully intending and planning to be baptized, we just haven't given you that opportunity yet. I believe you're welcome at the communion table. Amen, church? God knows your heart. He knows you're getting ready to be baptized. It's a matter of your heart and obedience. And so if you've been saved recently in our church, you just haven't been baptized because you're planning to be next Sunday for Easter, you can partake in communion tonight. If you get, accept Christ this morning and you're not going to get baptized until next Sunday, but you're planning to be, then you can take it. But I don't believe someone should take communion who's accepted Christ and they have no intention of being baptized. Because it's the very first act of obedience and the thing that the Lord asks us to do. And it's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Now, here's a question we often get asked about uh, taking communion. Is it okay for children to take communion? What age do you believe the Bible teaches for children to take communion? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a specific age about communion because the Bible doesn't give us a specific age about when children accept Christ. We believe that it's different for every child based upon when they are able to come to that age of accountability where they can understand they're a sinner and that Jesus died for them and make a faith decision. And usually we find that happens around six, seven, eight years of age that children can begin to understand that. So our prerequisite for children is no different than adults. If your child has accepted Christ, they've been baptized or planning to be, then they should take communion. If they've not made the faith decision to accept Christ, then they should wait on communion. If that makes sense to you, church, say yes. Okay, That's what we believe. Because the prerequisites, according to the scripture, are faith in Christ and baptism. That you are a believer and that it's meaningful. And we don't want children you know, to do something and think, well, I'm just getting a snack. You know, what, is, what is this about? 
We want them to understand it. Both of my children did not take communion, even though it went by them many times. Growing up in a pastor's home, you're exposed to communion. But we told them, we want you to wait until you understand this and until you accept Christ. You know what it can be for your children, parents? Having them wait to take communion can open the door to share the gospel. Because they're going to ask you, well, why can't I? What does that mean? And you have a great opportunity to begin to explain that to them and maybe lead them to Christ. What a great, what a great thing for a parent to do. Now, let me say this. I'm teaching you guys what the scriptures say this morning about communion. You know, who should, who shouldn't, what it means. But when we begin to distribute the elements tonight, you know, we don't walk around and go, okay, you can. Nope, not you. You can't. No, we don't do that. This is between you and the Lord. I'm telling you what the scriptures say. You answer to the Lord what you do with it, which leads us to the third prerequisite. Not only should someone be saved and baptized to take communion, but number three, a person should make a self-examination. A self-examination. Look at what Paul says here in our passage. In verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. After he'd given the instructions about communion, he said, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not being properly prepared, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man, what does it say, church? Examine himself between him and the Lord. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner... He hasn't prepared himself. He's gone and examined or doesn't fit the, fit the biblical prerequisite. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or respecting the Lord's body and the sacred you know, rite of communion and what we're doing tonight. So here are some questions you should ask yourself beginning this morning into tonight before you take communion. Number one, have I accepted Christ? Am I, am I a believer? Number two, have I been baptized or I am fully planning to be and intending to be as soon as I'm given the opportunity? Here's another question. Is my relationship with other believers in good standing? Because the Bible has a lot to say about not, you know, not coming to the Lord and, and doing these things if, you, if something's not right with your brother or sister in Christ. And then here's one we all need to ask ourselves before we take communion. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life that I need to deal with? Before I take communion. I don't know about y'all. But I could probably think of a couple of things. Here's the good news. You, you may feel like you know I'm a believer. I've been baptized. But I've got some things in my life. That aren't right with the Lord. So maybe I shouldn't take communion. No maybe what you should do. Is what 1 John 1 9 says. If we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Begin this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to prepare your heart. If there's any unconfessed sin, confess it. Make it right. Prepare yourself today as you come in tonight to be right with the Lord, to take the communion for all that it symbolizes and the beauty of it. Roland Allen tells about a veteran missionary who came to him one day after he had delivered his sermon about communion. The missionary introduced himself and he said, I was a medical missionary for many years in India. And I served in a region where there was progressive blindness. People were born with healthy vision, but there was something in that area that caused people to lose their sight as they matured with age. 
But this missionary had developed a process which would stop progressive blindness. So people came to him and he performed this operation and they would leave realizing that they had been spared a life of blindness because of this missionary. He said that they never said thank you because that phrase was not in their dialect. Instead, they spoke a word that meant, I will tell your name. I will tell your name. And wherever they went, they would tell the name of the missionary who had cured their blindness. You see, they had received something so wonderful that they eagerly proclaimed it wherever they went. Do you understand, church, tonight when we come to communion to this table? It is a proclamation. It's, it's, it's a proclamation of the most important event in human history. The event that saves us from a life of spiritual blindness. And when we take these elements, we tell of his name. And we proclaim our gratitude for the salvation he has provided each of us.